Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 18 of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogies, Bombast in a Podcast. I am your hostess with the mostest, Carolyn Neelachlan, and I'm back with our first ever mailbag episode. I hope that other people's questions provide you with some much needed answers. The latest notice from the Department of Humblebrag is this. Now remember, I told you I'd only hit you with new humblebrags each time we exceeded another thousand download mark, right? Well, Thanks to Christopher Harris and his brilliance in our last episode, not to mention his wonderful family and friends listening and supporting him, we hit the 3,300 download mark this week. So thank you all of you for making that happen. I also want to holler out a thank you to my patrons, Denise Lang, Liza Thompson, Matthew Arthur, Chris Olson, Lori Collier, Jane and David Richards, Sean Cooper, and Stacy Stanley. You're helping to carry this experiment forward, and I really, really appreciate you. The podcast face group is enjoying a nice, steady, organic kind of growth, and folks seem to be joining because they want community, they want passion, and they want to connect, and it really is happening. I hope you'll join us too. There's daily activity now. Uh, we've got some exclusive content there in terms of video. The marked focus on an interest in in POC and reparational genealogy among primarily white participants has really been encouraging, but I want to see a lot more faces. So I hope that you will jump in with us and join in the fun. I also wanted to tell you about an idea that I've had and I'm taking submissions. So I want you to look in your family recipes and think about what family recipes would you like to share with others? Because I'd like to start getting some family recipes in as kind of mini episodes between regular episodes. I'll be putting in some of my own. I'm going to call it the family cookbook. And if you would, you can submit them through the group or you can submit them through the Facebook page. You can submit them through the website or directly through email. But please think about that because I'm sure there's lots of wonderful stuff that you'd like for us to be cooking up in memory of your ancestors. So forward with the mailbag. I don't listen to a lot of chat podcasts, but I do listen to a fun one produced by one of our listeners, a member of the Facebook group. Her name is uh, Mouse because her podcast is called Mouse and Weens. And Mouse and Weens are two sisters and they talk about pretty much anything, pretty much everything. It's some pretty freewheeling stuff as a matter of fact. And so Mouse had a mailbag question for us. And it's one that a lot of people have asked me. The answer is highly subjective, and I'm not right about this. I'm giving my answer from the perspective of a person who believes in reparational and cooperative genealogy. Mouse asked, in general, how far are you supposed to go in your family tree? You did an episode on shrubbing, which I loved, but I get caught up in going down my husband's line and all the folks who married into his line. I guess I'm asking, what is typical when you say my tree? How many side branches should it have or is the sky the limit? So, mouse, do you really need to eat or sleep? That's pretty much what determines my exhaustion level with any one line. But let me put it to you this way. I let myself be guided by the spirit or for those of you who aren't believers, I go with my gut. 
I get a very strong impulse about when to stop and when to move on to another area of the tree. Now, that's maybe just me. I'm not really sure, but that's definitely my thing. I go with the spirit. If that's too fluffy for you, let me break it down a little bit further. There are a few other guides or ways of knowing that I use or that I think that you could use. And let me preface by saying that it's crucial to set yourself as the home person in your ancestry tree so that beneath the name of every person in the tree on that person's Facebook page or homepage in ancestry, you can readily see that person's relationship to you or to the person for whom you have created the tree. That is crucial. To do this, simply open up your tree, go to settings, then edit your home person in this tree by selecting yourself or the person for whom you're creating the tree. Do the same for who you are in this tree. Having worked my Pace family, which is a great big Southern family, out to third cousins, came in handy the other day. It showed up via Ancestry DNA. For a little background there, Ancestry DNA is autosomal, which means that when you take the test, the answers that it pulls draws matches from both sides of the family. Y-DNA testing is a male-only DNA test, and it tests a man's father's 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 line, going all the way back in the male line. So a woman can't take a Y-DNA test. Ancestry doesn't provide that test. MT-DNA or matrilineal DNA does the same with women. It's only for women and it tests a woman's mother's 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 DNA all the way back in the female line. Ancestry doesn't provide that either. Other companies like Family Tree DNA, which has the most outstandingly unfriendly user interface I have ever seen, does. Ancestry, on the other hand, is all about accessibility. Unfortunately, it's also rather simplistic. So it gives you a lot of information, but it can be too much information and I don't know, it also doesn't give you the tools necessary to cut down the information. So, yeah. With the autosomal test and the regrettable fact that Ancestry has no triangulation tools whatsoever to facilitate test takers' ability to compare three people's tests at once to determine which side of the family they share, every match is a crapshoot in that you have to dig around to figure out whether a match is on mom's side or dad's side of your family. That's why folks who take tests with Ancestry really kind of have to enlist as many family members as possible on both sides to test. Frankly, I think that Ancestry does this to make money. And I'm not really happy about it, especially since other companies do provide tools to help folks triangulate. But I could be wrong. I'm bitter and jaded and I doubt I'm wrong, but I could be wrong. Anyway, there's a guy. Let's call him... Edward Kosloff. Kosloff isn't his real name, but let's just say it is. He tested on Ancestry and he showed up in my matches as a third to fourth cousin with no tree and extremely high confidence. So that's actually a pretty good match. When I saw the match, I immediately knew the name, Kosloff, because I'd shrubbed out. I didn't even have to think about it. I knew he's a Pace cousin. He can look at my tree because mine is public, but if he needed to know, I'd barely have to look to tell him at the very least that he's a pace. 
And because I now have this very systematic way of working hints and of using best evidence and best practices in deriving data once hints are exhausted and I have to start spyglass searching, Edward doesn't even really need a tree for part of his work. He can totally bootleg mine. And I'm cool with that. That's cooperative genealogy. The thing is, my work is not my property, unless he's a Jeffrey, in which case I'm going to block him like a heavyweight in the first round. I'm here to help. And if Edward Kosloff, for some reason, didn't know something crucial about his family, but needed to, like maybe who one of his parents was or something, and DNA was his only way into that information, look what I did. I was able to give him his family his Pace family, going all the way back to 1611. Not freaking bad. So third cousins are cool. Now he hasn't reached out yet, and he may never choose to. But if he does, I'm ready to help him. And I like that. The point is, I'm prepared. On the other hand, I can get in a little bit deep, like a little bit too deep. I have this raft of third cousins in Texas, and they all seem to have like five ex-spouses each. No joke. And when I realize that I'm tracing the grandparents of my third cousin's five ex-spouses, I know that I need a cookie and a nap. So I'd say find that happy medium somewhere between Edward Kosloff and your third cousin's five ex-spouses' grandparents. I hope that helps. There is an exception to this, however. If you're dealing with a slaveholding family from the South or from New Amsterdam or even from the colonial and pre-1808 North, shrub like a gardener in a cool summer's week. Go for it. Those families might well be families with data in their wills and probate records that pertain to property transfers of slaves. Any data that you can pass along to a person of color doing their own research is a contribution to reparational genealogy. If a cousin who is a person of color approaches you either over documentary evidence or over a DNA relationship, and you have done a lot of shrubbing on families tied to slavery or who are suspect in regards to slaveholding, you can provide assistance that is a contribution to reparational genealogy. You may never reach a place where you're running up trees for folks to help them start their work, but if you can prepare your tree for the day when you unexpectedly are approached by a cousin or inquiring researcher about your DNA or your surname, you become a reparational genealogist. And I look forward to that day for all of you and for all genealogists who work with trees in the U.S., and I hope that you do as well. As far as the forwards and backwards motion, the treeing as opposed to the shrubbing, I try to bring every line down to the present day, and I also try to push all European trees back over the ocean and all African trees back as far as documentary evidence will allow. Now, I don't have a whole lot of experience with Latin American trees, so I can't really speak to that, unfortunately. I do hope that I will get some experience with that soon. That simply isn't a challenge that's jumped in front of me yet, and the same thing goes for Native American work. Now, next question. 
If there is a day that Stacy doesn't have a question for me, I hope I don't live to see the dawn of it because truly she is the light of my life and she is the light of the From Paper to People group. She asked a fundamental ancestry question that I think a lot of folks have. I had it for a long time and this is what she asked. Do you consider any of the following record types found on Ancestry.com a legitimate source? One, family data collection, births. Two, family data collection, marriages. Three, family data collection, individual records. Four, U.S. and international marriage records. Five, Netherlands genealogy online trees index. The quick answer, no, they're crap. The long answer is also pretty simple. I used to believe these records. I took them for gospel, in fact. That was early days in Ancestry. And as time went on and I got to know Ancestry better, I realized that they were compilations of trees already in existence and generally compilations of sources that were shaky to begin with. Therefore, they are crap. Whenever they pop up as hints, which they only do before the 19th century in U.S. records, I just ignore them immediately. They provide scurrilous dates, incorrect spouses and parents, and cause more trouble than they're worth. The older sections of my tree are still cluttered up with garbage from these so-called records, and I need to go back and get rid of them all. So boo to family data collections. Boo, boo, boo. Stacy, in turn, though, gave some great input when answering a question that was posed in the group by Chris. So here's what Chris asked. How do you add information about slaves your ancestors owned without it looking like you are still basically insisting that they belong in your family line? I want to help do the research and share info for the ancestors of the family that were one of my line slaves, but I don't want to make a tree that basically still claims ownership by adding them to my tree but I want there to be an easy way to show that connection so all families can share whatever information is found. How do I have them in my shrub or tree without continuing to perpetuate a sense of current and assumed ownership of their history? How do I set that up in a way that when descendants of the slaves of my kin find my tree on ancestry, they see something that is clear that they are not part of my tree, but still connected, so information can flow freely. I like this question because it acknowledges reality while it shows a lot of consideration for making info available to researchers and for their truth. The first thing I think you have to acknowledge is that the only people who belong in your tree are your blood relatives. However, you do wanna make this data available and that is very important. You could include information in the notes for each person who was involved in whatever record showed ownership, like a will or a probate record or an 1860 slave schedule. I also have a simple graphic that I use as the main photo for every slaveholding ancestor in my tree. It's a white field with the word slaveholder in red. It makes them easy to spot in the tree in either pedigree or family group view. Posting about these lines and the records available about slaveholding ancestors would be great in Facebook groups like Lost Kin and Descendants of Slaves and Slave Owners, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Missouri. The latter group isn't actually limited to those three states. It just started out being about those three states and it is a hub created for sharing exactly this kind of information. But then Stacy added a fantastic idea. 
put on your ancestry profile that you have information about enslaved persons connected to your family. That way, if anyone looks and sees that, they may contact you, particularly if they happen to be a DNA match to you. I would add to that by saying that stating the names of your slaveholding ancestors and the colony, state, or region they lived in and their birth and death years would also be very helpful. Those pieces of information could lead researchers on ancestry to an understanding of possible links via will and probate records. Diane had a great question too. It was also fully discussed in the group, but I thought you non-members might like it. Now, you see why it is that you should be in this Facebook group? I mean, it's really like a groovy place to discuss things, and we're all answering one another's questions. So here's what Diane asked. How do you know who to trust when it comes to specific info for people who can no longer personally verify it? For example... I found two sources that list my great-grandfather as a fireman working at a silk mill, but my father says there's no way that his grandfather was only ever a laborer and nothing more. I thought at first it might be a mistake in identifying the script handwriting and maybe it said foreman, but then I found the second source that also listed fireman. Both sources were handwritten, not by my great-grandfather, but one was signed by him. The two sources were a draft registration card from World War I and a census record from 1920. This seems like a close enough relation that my dad would know, but I don't feel comfortable taking his word for it. I found other sources that list him as a laborer and even one census where he is listed as a gardener for a private home. In my opinion, it's all the same man, just changed jobs. But this is not about opinions, it's about facts and logic, right? So my mind is bending and I'm pretty sure you're going to say trust the documents, but what if he spoke with an Italian accent and they misheard him? Any tips would be appreciated, thanks. The first thing I would do is read up on the silk mills near where and when the census was taken or the specific one listed as the employer in the draft record. A Wikipedia article will do as a background on silk mills, but a Google search of the specific employer might also be fun. It might turn something new up. A fireman in that setting wasn't a guy on a red truck with a big hose. Silk mills, like cutting rooms and other fabric-related shops, were full of flying fibers, so they were fire traps. Fighting fires in this setting was a critical daily job and absolutely crucial to the safety of all mill workers. He was probably responsible for keeping the work areas clear of fibers. So it could have been as simple as he was the guy who swept up a lot, you know, and that's definitely a basic labor kind of job. As far as the draft record goes, there are a few points here. The info was taken from your ancestor by a guy who was sitting there right with him writing on the card. Your ancestor himself is the informant. Anything on that record is from your ancestor himself. The same goes for the census record, but understanding how the silk mill worked and the role of the fireman is an important way to understand what your ancestor was doing. And as for him speaking with an accent, there are two possibilities. If he was speaking English, you need to get in the room. Try speaking English with an Italian accent and say the two words. Do they sound alike? Now, I know this sounds nuts, but I do it all the time. Otherwise, check the original card. Did the interviewer have an Italian name? 
If so, it's possible that he was bilingual, in which case your ancestor was understood perfectly because the interviewer was translating back and forth in order to be able to write in English and speak in Italian and get all of the information he needed while being clearly understood. But regardless, trust the record. It's a government record. Fathers with access to grind about the worthiness of their grandfather's professional pursuits are almost never to be trusted. Now, this is not a question I've been posed so much as a situation we've all been faced with. Have you noticed that ancestry has kind of sucked lately? Lots of error pages, things moving slowly, and no banner telling us what the heck is going on. Yeah, well, it turns out that they've been doing some massive whacking ton of upgrades and changes to the site. And after being tweeted by bajillions of very unhappy genies, they finally released a statement about it on May 11th on their Facebook page. I didn't know about it. I'll explain why in a minute. Otherwise, I would have warned you a lot earlier. But here's the text of it. Some users have recently been experiencing technical issues when using Ancestry.com. We are currently undertaking a series of planned system enhancements that may result in intermittent site issues through Thursday, May 31, 2018. Once complete, they will improve site performance and enable more records, more hints, and more connections, making the platform even more valuable for our community. Please know that your data is safe with us. All the work you have done on your trees will be preserved, even if you are experiencing some difficulties as the result of this upgrade. We appreciate how frustrating this has been, and thank you very much for bearing with us during this period. So in theory, it's good. As of now, it's all good. But I can say that it was still glitchy this morning. So we'll see about all of this. Also, the only thing that I've noticed that's different is in the hints, there is now a new category. In addition to the, um, the other ones, you know, ignored and accepted and whatever. So okay, so that's sort of the deal with that. Uh, bleh. Uh, there you go. Um, Finally, okay, I want to prepare for something that I'm kind of excited about, which is an upcoming Twitter episode. I want to do an episode for you about how to use Twitter to network with other genealogists. And I mean all kinds of genealogists. We're talking from seriously certificated pros and people who are on the big time speaking circuits and who go to all of these different um, conversational uh, kinds of um you know, panel discussions, all the way up to people who give enormous talks at great big conferences and stuff like that. And then all the way over to the other end, uh, people who are doing their own work individually and who are not professional at all, but who also have lots of valuable, interesting input and people who are willing to do lookups people who live in other countries. So there are a lot of people on Twitter that are just really great people. And they're very, very excellent people to know for just a lot of reasons. So I'm looking forward to this, to putting this together. And in anticipation of that, I hope that you'll get a Twitter account if you don't already have one. Um, what I'd like for you to do is search the hashtag genealogy. And you know what I say when I'm, when I'm saying hashtag, right? It's the pound sign, the two up and down lines and the two lines cross it. Somebody had to explain that to me a while ago because I didn't know, I knew it as a number sign. I didn't know it was a pound sign. How am I going to know that? Anyway, then what I want you to do is after you start following, looking for tweets with 
hashtag genealogy, read the tweets that are attached to that and read the tweets that are put out by the people who use that hashtag often. I want you to start to follow some people and I have a couple of usernames or actually it's not usernames, it's really names of people for you to follow. So search and follow these people. Genealogy Girl Talks, Erin Hill Burns, Amy Johnson Crow, Teresa Vega, who is one of our group members, and Sir Leprechaun Rabbit, who is about to do an interview for us. Tweet that you're a newbie. Tweet that you're new to Twitter or that you are wherever you are in genealogy. And this is for those of you who haven't done this already, okay? I know there are plenty of you who are not newbies at all on Twitter. If you are a newbie, however, do this and and ask a question, some kind of a question that you've got using the hashtag genealogy and other hashtags that are pertinent to the question, family tree, ancestry, research, um, you know, something like that, whatever it is that absolutely applies to what you're thinking. See who replies. Strike up a conversation because this is what this is about. You know, Twitter is not just for yelling at each other. Twitter is actually a place to strike up conversations. Or you can actually hop into an existing conversation and ask a question or provide a little answer if you have one, um, if you find that thread to be an interesting thread. Set yourself a goal of doing this a few times a week, and you'll start to get to know the people there. And we'll discuss Twitter as an amazing resource in another episode. But for those of you who are new or you haven't really done it yet at all, start to get your feet wet now. You'll be glad that you did. Now... I owe you guys a bit of an apology because I know that after starting strong with weekly episodes in January and pushing on through January and February, I have slacked a bit. And there's a reason. I haven't wanted to drag you down or anything, but I've been having some fairly serious health issues. I've been on leave from work for two months now. My energy is low or it's unpredictable. I'll have like a good day or two and then I'll have a bad couple of days to a week and I'm not on as regular a schedule as I'd like. And that is how I missed the Facebook update from Ancestry. And I haven't been on the computer as much as usual. I'm not making excuses. I'm just letting you know that I'm fighting a bit of a battle here and I would be more energetic if I could be. So I really hope that you do join the group on Facebook because it is easier for me to be responsive there. It's quick and dirty. I can get in and I can get out. Also joining the group on Facebook, you can do a lot toward helping me make the podcast responsive to your needs by participating there and by asking me questions there. I need ideas from you, absolutely, and your energy feeds me. It really helps me. So again, I do apologize for not being regular. I'm fighting my way back. I'm working with my doctors, and I will do everything that I can to be as regular as I used to be in getting episodes out to you. That's why I want to start the mini episodes as well in doing the family cookbook, because I think that we can have some fun with that. So I really do mean it when I say that this is a group effort and a community. I want you to be a part of this as well. Thank you so much for listening to our first ever mailbag episode. I had a lot of fun. I hope you did too. Our Facebook group is called From Paper to People. And if you're not there, can you tell I want you there? You really should be. Join us for free video content to answer and ask questions to meet others and to build a working research community. You can also go there for exclusive tips, for links, for content. I draw most of my mailbag items from there too, as you could tell from this evening. So this is a really good place to be. Kurt Brady, 
He's the man to see if you want some cool podcast music. Shoot an email to curtisbrady at yahoo.com with your ideas and requests. He writes, plays, and records. And Denise Lang is not just a listener and a patron, by the way. She's masterminding the redesign at ancestorsalivegenealogy.com, which is my website. Come and check out our progress periodically because I think that it's getting really nice. It's getting responsive to the needs of the community and to the kinds of things that I want to make sure people can find and need and need to see. You can find links there to all of my social media, so I don't need to tell you where else you can find me. I do need your help, though. In fact, I need a street army to help get the word out about this podcast. Would you join up with that? If you like what I'm doing here, would you spread the word to your friends and in groups and threads, maybe tweet a bit about it? I also need ratings and reviews on iTunes to bump it up in the iTunes store. It helps so much, truly. The other thing that you can do is become a sustaining financial supporter at patreon.com slash ancestors alive. Rewards include phone lessons and being interviewed on the podcast. There are seven levels ranging from $1 to $25 per month, or you can become a one-time supporter on the website using PayPal. Your generosity keeps the virtual classroom moving forward. Have a great week, everybody. Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. Never stop asking questions. And above all, expect surprises.